This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are one episode away from 60 episodes. We're one episode away from Babe Ruth's former Major League home run single season record mark in episodes. I don't know what the conversion rate is between those two things, episodes versus home runs in the 1930s. But either way, hey, welcome in. It's the 59th edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. Also, I think that was 1927 that he did that. I'm Tyler Ron, Sam Dykstra's in New York City. Man, what a pointless start to this episode. No, it's good because we started the podcast with a good stretch. You really tried to stretch to make that happen. I think we're all feeling good and loose now after having stretched out that attempt at a simile or metaphor or whatever the heck that was. That was pretty good. By the way, uh, Ruth 60 was in 1927. He also had 59 in 1921, not broken until Roger Maris 1961 when he had 61. So now we know. Now we're into the uh, factual information. Now 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 we're in the thick of it. Babe Ruth only won one MVP award. What? Also, Babe Ruth, for being lauded as being a large, fat man on baseball references, listed as 6'2", 215, which is not that big. No, but, you know, that huh. that might have been what he listed himself at. Huh. That could be. That could be. And yeah. uh, his actual weight. And <laughs> also, people were small. down a little bit. Yeah, people were like, everybody weighed like 130 pounds back then. Yeah, having sat in Fenway Park. I can uh, I can confirm people are smaller in the 1920s. So, hey, it's the uh, 59th edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. Tons coming up for you on the show today. Big kudos to Sam, as always, who booked a fantastic guest for this week. Max Pentecost, the seventh-ranked Toronto Blue Jays prospect, missed all the 2015 season, but is back and just ripping the baseball all over the yard here through his first five games in 2016. Max Pentecost joins the show. Very excited about that. Benjamin Hill a little bit later on as well. We'll catch up with Ben, who has returned from his jaunt through the Carolinas, both north and south. Uh, We'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, some other promotional stuff going on around minor league baseball. And we will talk about the finalists for the new name of the Binghamton Mets, who will no longer be the Binghamton Mets going into the 2017 season, because there are some interesting ones in there. Uh, But let's get started with three strikes for the 59th episode of the show before the show. And we'll kick things off. We're a full month now, a little bit over into the minor league baseball season. We are now under a month away until the start of short season ball. So it seems like we've gotten a good read, a good feel on who is succeeding and why. Sam, what has been the most impressive farm system or farm systems to use so far in the way that they've started this year? Yeah, so I came out with a story today. Today's Wednesday, so by the time everybody's listening to this, it will have been about 24 hours old, but it's still on the site. Um, It's still good for everybody to read. Uh, I did this story, just kind of broke down the top 10 farm systems according to win percentage. Uh, you know, their collective full season teams, their four full season teams, who have the best winning percentage among the 30 farm systems. Uh, and I'm only going to touch on maybe the top two or three and one extra one here. But the top top farm system right now, according to winning percentage, this isn't according to prospect talent, anything like that, um, just who has won the biggest percentage of their games is the Cleveland Indians who at the time I wrote this had a 662 collective winning percentage. Yeah. Their four full season teams went a combined 98 and 50 
through Monday's games. As of recording now, they're 99 and 52. So it's May 18th, and they're one win away from 100 as an organization in 2016. Yeah, which is just insane. I mean, that's essentially a a one one full major league season. Um, I remember looking up the other day, and all four of their affiliates had a winning percentage above 600. I mean, that's that means everything's clicking on all cylinders at all levels. And the Rangers are in a kind of similar spot. They they were number two at the time I wrote this. They had a 635 winning percentage. Their teams were 94 and 54. Uh, Rangers and Indians, I think, are re- two teams that are really well positioned to have those winning records across the board just because their, uh, their talent is spread out pretty well. We're not talking about there's one team that's really, really good and every and everybody else is just kind of falling apart. Um, the Indians, I think they have some really good talent. In Akron, obviously, they've got Bradley Zimmer and Clint Frazier there, and Adam Pluko is doing very well, and Sean Morimondo is doing very well at that level. But then you look at Lynchburg, who uh, has you know one of their other best sl- sluggers, and Bobby Bradley, and then Julian Merriweather, who I wrote about earlier this week as a player of the week, has been kind of a breakout prospect for them. Uh, you know, you look at their Lake County team, they've got four regular starters who are hitting above the 100. I mean, when I wrote my farm system piece at the beginning of the year, ranked them, they were right in the middle there. Uh, I even wrote in this piece, I called them a fairly middling system. Uh, they were 16th best, which 16 out of 30 is about as middling as you can get. Um, but because the prospect depth is so, is that, is that it's depth and it's so well spread out, even if it's not necessarily that great at its peak um that's how you end up with these really good winning percentages rangers kind of in a similar way uh you know we like to talk a lot about that frisco team right now that is lewis brinson and um ryan cordell who's been another breakout prospect this year and that team at round rock that it's been really good with joey gallo and had nomar mazara there for a while um but high desert is doing you know high desert things in terms of hitting lots of homers travis Merritt certainly taking advantage there with 12 homers. I think that's second most in the minors right now. But Luis Ortiz is pitching very well at that level. Um, as a youngster, you know, he's gotten really tested in the California League and is passing those tests so far. Um, so the Indians and the Rangers are two teams that are really surprising, not necessarily surprising me, but um, are really impressing me uh, with the way that they have been winning in bunches this year. And, and the team I just kind of want to touch on quickly uh in that it actually is a surprise that it's in this top 10 is number seven with the Seattle Mariners. Um, you know, we talked earlier coming into this year, the Mariners have a very down system this year. Uh, you know, Alex Jackson is their top prospect. He hasn't even played yet after having a really tough year last year, starting out at Clinton, got sent down to Everett, um, hasn't played yet this year. Edwin Diaz is their best pitching prospect, but they moved him to the bullpen where he could be very, very good, but that's obviously going to limit his value. Um, but yet the Mariners are winning as an organization. And I, I want to bring it up on this podcast because, as some of you might recall, uh, we brought on Director of Player Development Andy McKay back in January. And we brought him up just to talk about um, you know, his new role and how he, he used to work as a mental skills coach and how that was going to work. But something he talked about that kind of rung true to me was he talked about winning versus player development and how the, he wanted to turn ma- the Mariners farm system into a winning one and have that be something that prospects carry throughout the system. Obviously, we're only a month through, but right now uh, the Mariners are certainly doing that. Last year, uh, or the last two years, they had ranked in the 20s in terms of winning percentage. This year they're up to seventh. 
Um, so it's obviously working in the first month. We'll have to check in with them as the season goes on. But that's at, at least uh, somewhat promising out of a system that's that's pretty well down there. It's pretty impressive. The uh, the Indians now coming into Wednesday evening, as we noted, 99 and 52. Rangers right behind them at 97 and 55. But the third best winning percentage minor league organization right now is the New York Yankees, which is kind of surprising in its own right, just given the Yankees track record of being an organization that doesn't necessarily rely entirely on developing talent. But they have 87 wins as an organization. So there's a 10 win gap between the Rangers at number two and the Yankees at number three in overall system winning percentage. So it goes to show you how good the Indians and Rangers have been. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about this, I mean, you're talking about the Mariner system and how they're learning how to win don't necessarily have, you know, as of right now, massive frontline guys who are really blowing up uh, at the top of that system. The Rangers are kind of that way too. I mean, Joey Gallo, we've seen out of action, the hamstring strain, I believe it is. Lewis Brinson has not put up you know, eye-popping numbers so far. He's OPSing 715, hitting 230 uh, so far this season for Double-A Frisco. Nomar Mazzara, I don't think we're ever going to see in the minor leagues again at this stage with the way that he's played <laughs> at the major league level. Uh, but Dylan Tate, decent numbers, the 3.71 ERA and five appearances for Hickory, but opponents are batting 304 against him. Um, you know, that's the kind of crazy thing about this is the Rangers are doing it so well across the board while their top-line guys – are having good seasons, but it's not like this is just a, a world-changing explosion out of the gate for those prospects. So that makes it almost even more impressive. Yeah, and I remember when we were doing the farm system rankings, I I thought the Rangers pretty much carried themselves to, a, I think they were a top-five system based on the strength at the top. Um, and I didn't see you know them having particularly a deep system below that. Um, otherwise, I would have ranked them a little higher. Um, but they're, they're showing otherwise. And, you know, that's the fun part of, you know, what happens when we actually get games again. Um, you can be proven wrong. And, you know, they are showing themselves to be a better system than even what we thought coming in, which was already, you know, what we thought was going to be a really good system. So uh, the Rangers are certainly ones on the up and up here. Strike two this week, Sam. It is uh, kind of uh, an interesting week over the last week, 10 days or so, in that we're seeing, you know, nothing is going to compare to the summer of 2015 with the amount of just really really elite prospects that graduated but we're seeing some impact talent graduate over the last week 10 days or so one guy was really thrust in the spotlight and that was former first overall pick matt bush uh but tony kemp has been called up colin moran has been called up uh who do you think makes a bigger impact arguably right now you could say maybe for one pitch matt bush has been the one to do that so far but of those yeah. guys um who who's standing out to you yeah so uh it's it, like you kind of touched on, it is just a very interesting week in terms of these guys who do get the call. Uh, Matt Bush, like you said, he's already made his impact, I guess, quite literally. Uh, felt at the major league level, involved a little bit in that brawl, hitting Jose Batista the other day. But, you know, is, is a guy who can bring straight gas to that Rangers bullpen. And it's kind of it's nice to see somebody build themselves back up like that and reach the level. Hopefully, you know, he can prove himself on and off the field. But it's certainly encouraging that he's he's made his way back. Um, but other side of that, um, it's kind of interesting to just see the Astros, you know, and what has been a difficult year for them so far, turning to the young guys and saying, OK, you know what, we're going to just have talent win out. And, you know, they've had some problems at third base, so they're going to let Colin Moran get give his chances there. And Tony Kemp, uh, he was a guy I wrote at the beginning of the year. He was at a crossroads, not through anything of his own doing. I think he's a very good hitter. He's certainly fast. Um, but he's a second baseman or has been brought up as a second baseman. And there's no way he's knocking off Jose Altuve off that 
second base spot for Houston. Um, so they were going to try to use him more in the outfield, and they've kind of done that. I think he's going to be their fourth or fifth outfielder. Um, so for the purposes of this question, who out of that group of guys who has been called up this week, I think Colin Moran has the best chance to make an impact there. Uh, this was a guy who was hitting 288 uh, at Triple A Fresno. He had a 747 OPS, three homers, seven doubles. Um, nothing that's really going to jump out to you and say this guy's going to be an elite talent, you know, all-star talent. But he's certainly a guy who has built himself back up. Um, he was a sixth overall pick back in 2013 with the Marlins, got traded in a deal that sent uh, Jared Cozart to Miami. And uh, so he came over with kind of a, a hurt reputation, and he's built himself back up again, and now he's getting that chance at the major league level. I remember watching him a little bit at spring training this year. He was in hitting in the cage with you know A.J. Reed and uh, Tyler White, and they were putting him right in there in that mix um, in terms of hard-hitting corner infielders. Um, so they will give him his chance. So it will be a little bit more of a platoon, but – I think he has a better chance to get playing time than Kemp will. Um, Kemp will, may get his chances in the outfield and left field, center field. Um, he can show a little bit of range there. Doesn't necessarily have a great arm to be playing that, but I think he had, he made one of the catches of the year last year. Uh, go look it up if you have a get if you get the chance um, while you're listening to this. It is certainly uh, one that was still the talk of the Houston camp when I was there in the spring. Um, so. Yeah, I think Moran has a little bit better of a chance, but it will be interesting to see what the Astros are going to do with Alex Bregman, not to look you know, two steps down the road, um, but they've already moved him to third base uh, at Double A Corpus Christi. He homered again today, um, so he's continuing his development you know, at the same pace he's been going. He's continuing to show lots of power. Uh, lots of people think he's not going to move Carlos Correa off short, so what are you going to do with him? Maybe we move him to third. Okay, but what happens to Colin Moran? I don't think anybody doubts that Alex Bregman has more potential than Moran does. Um, so, you know, Moran's going to have to perform at this highest level, and I think he, he'll get his chance, and that's all you can ask for. Ah, prospect promotion time. It's like it. that's one of the funnest things about this job is when it doesn't stop. It's so exciting. Like, again, it's nothing's going to be like last year with maybe ever again that we're going to see with guys going up to the big leagues and making the impacts that guys made last season. Um, but it's just that's one of the most rewarding things about this job is it's like when you get done being excited about something. Well, then here's the next wave of guys you get to be excited about. Yeah. And, cool. and the good thing, too, is, you know, we can kind of see. The machinations of this happening you know you can see the world the the wheels turning and okay well what does that mean for this player and what do, does that mean for that prospect and you know do they are they going to have to uh, change positions are they going to have to change approaches or you know there's just so many questions that we can kind of dig ourselves into um and and the bottom line these guys are going to have to perform and that's that's going to provide the answers to our questions Strike three this week, Sam, the number two prospect in the Seattle Mariners organization. We talked about the M's a little bit ago, but Edwin Diaz is making the move to the bullpen throughout the entirety of his minor league career. He's made 82 appearances. 71 of those have been starts, but a really dynamic arm, a guy with a fastball that grades out as a 65 uh, where he can touch mid to upper 90s um, and seems like with the Mariners now in the position where they are contending in the American League West, something that a lot of people have expected them to do for a lot of years, that now in a season when I don't think many people expected them to now they're somehow figuring that out um it's a guy who can be an impact arm in a place where we've seen 
that become the inefficiency? Bringing up young, talented, powerful arms to shorten games out of the bullpen. Um, I mean, first of all, your thoughts on Diaz. Second of all, do you think anybody else sticks out in your mind as uh, an arm that should make a similar move? Uh, yeah, so I kind of phrased this question because there's so many – uh, guys who I think, you know, we always talk about, we talked about a couple weeks ago with Josh Hader. Um, they're, yeah. they're projected to be relievers at some point and they can prove it's wrong. Um, but there are other guys who, you know, we're going to kind of stick to being, this is probably for the best that they are going to be a reliever at some point. And the guy who jumped into my mind, um, it's unfortunate because I think he pitched this week and only got 21 pitches in and had to be taken out again, um, was Kyle Zimmer, um, friend of the podcast, joined us in the spring. Um, certainly sounded upbeat at that point. A guy who's come up, you know, a, a rash of injuries in recent years. Uh, he's dealt with some lat problems, um, elbow, biceps, shoulder, pretty much anything you can think of. Uh, the Royals keep trying him out there. You know, they want him to be a starter. When he is out there, he has plus plus stuff. Um, could be a top of the line guy, but if this is a guy who just keeps falling apart, I think limiting his innings by moving him to the pen, where his plus stuff would play very well, anyways. Um, it, it has to be almost the top consideration at this point. It, you know, he got shut down before the season even started again with some shoulder fatigue. Uh, it seems like he experienced it again this week at Northwest Arkansas. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Royals, when he comes back, it, you know, if he's not, you know, raring to go for his next start, they shut him down again for a little while and decide, you know what, now is the time to just make you a bullpen arm and squeeze as much value as we can out of you there the like i said i mean that's the new the way that teams have focused on trying to shorten games and follow that model that we've seen been successful over the last several years i mean obviously the royals and the giants and the new york yankees are trying to that at the major league level not necessarily in the same way with the money that they spend on bringing in uh established arms but it's a it's an avenue that gives pitchers a a quicker road to the big leagues and like you said limits the workload potentially limits damage on an arm by not stressing it out quite as much. Now there's kind of a contrast there in that when you're coming out of the bullpen, you're able to wing it a little bit more and throw with some more velocity. So whatever the strain is that brings there. Um, but still it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on because teams have really started to like that over the last uh, handful of seasons. And it's been one of the in vogue things in player development and, uh, and a successful formula at the major league level. Um, so that wraps up strike three, but we did also have a fan-submitted question this week to the podcast. Jason Graves, a Chicago Cubs fan from Dayton, Ohio, emailed us this, which will be our foul ball for this week's uh, segment of the show. Quote, as a Cubs fan, I marvel at their conveyor belts of young hitters but often cringe at the arms of the minors, and I wonder if that collection of arms in Myrtle Beach – might be the real deal. That's the Class A advanced affiliate of the Cubs. Could this rotation of Zach Hedges, Trevor Clifton, Eric Leal, Jeremy Nolan, Jake Stinnett be the pitching equivalent of Bryant, Russell, Solaire, Baez, and Schwarber? Is there hope? Um, I don't know if anything is going to be the equivalent of those guys, but right now, if I'm a Cubs fan, I'm pretty excited about those guys because they fly very much under the radar in that system. I mean, anybody in that system flies collectively under the radar from the pitching side than what the the offensive prowess has been coming out of the Cubs system in recent years, and uh, obviously with what Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer have been able to collect in what they perceived was going to be kind of a down offensive era, trying to counter that with all these bats that they've brought up has been pretty eye-opening in how to build an organization. But Myrtle Beach right now 
as a team, has a 2.96 staff ERA. That's the best in the Carolina League. Of the six guys who have regularly started games, Jeremy Null has pitched in a game as a start as well. He's only made two appearances in total. But of the six guys who have regularly started on that roster, the worst numbers belong to Eric Leal, and he's 4-2 and two with a 3.94 ERA. So that goes to show you how good that rotation's been right now. Zach Hedges has been phenomenal, 3-3 three and three record, but a 1.89 ERA. Opponents are batting 207 against him. He struck out 28 and only walked 9 in 38 innings. This is a pretty impressive little collection of talent that they have in Myrtle Beach. And like I said, I think it's something that people don't necessarily know is in the pipeline because so much of the focus there has been on how fast is Glaber Torres going to climb, where's Wilson Contreras going to be, and you know, in addition to that, all the talent that graduated last year at the position player side. Yeah, uh, not to dump too much cold water on this, it's just there. You know, it is, it has been an exciting first month for Myrtle Beach. I don't quite see that much impact major league talent there. Um, I don't think they have really any prospects that would be you know the top 10 prospects in that cub system which is as we've talked about you know many times is a very very good one um you know it's fun to see the guys perform where they're they're at and to put up some of those numbers like you mentioned zach hedges you know video game numbers of a 1.89 era and a 1.00 whip i mean that's fun he he is a 23 year old in a high a league i'm a little old for that level not that you expect anybody to have a sub two era but um, you know, we're, you have to take it with a couple grains of salt um, to call this group, you know, the pitching equivalent of Bryant, Russell, Solaire, et cetera, is pretty hyperbolic. But, um, you know, if you're a Cubs fan looking for something to be excited about in the lower levels, this is certainly a good place to start. Um, I just think there's a reason why, you know, Theo Epstein and the Cubs brass has kind of looked to sign pitching. Um, just because they don't really have the, the guys in the system right now to develop. Um, so, you know, they they have some interesting arms in the system, you know, um, but I don't think there's anything right now, if you're going to get really excited about it, um, you know, I, I would stay excited about those bats because they are as exciting as anything in baseball right now. So that wraps up this week's first segment of the show before the show podcast. Coming up after a brief pause, Max Pentecost, the Toronto Blue Jays organization, joins the show. Missed all 2015 due to a couple of different surgeries on his shoulder, but Max Pentecost now back healthy and raring to go. He's got hits in his first five games as a member of the Lansing Lugnuts of the Class A Midwest League. Max Pentecost joins the show after the break. Watch the stars of tomorrow today on MILB-TV. Before they made it to the show, stars like Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, and Chris Bryant were on MILB-TV. Subscribe today to get more than 5,000 minor league games streamed live and on demand, including games from affiliates of all 30 major league clubs. Select all-star and postseason games are also included. On the go? Watch on your iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch with the free MILB First Pitch app. Visit MILB.TV for details. One of the uh, very few finals around the world of minor league baseball has already come in today from the team from which our next guest joins this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. Max Pentecost joins us from uh, somewhere in the Midwest League today. The Lansing Lugnuts are at Fort Wayne uh, and got a one nothing victory in 10 innings today. And Max, the number 7-ranked Toronto Blue Jays prospect. Welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm great. How are you all? 
We're good. It's uh, good. This has obviously been a, a very long road back for you. Max, for those unfamiliar, drafted with the 11th overall pick in 2014 by the Blue Jays out of Kennesaw State University, the highest player drafted in the history of that program uh, and the, the best player at the D1 mm-hmm. level since Kennesaw State moved up. Drafted. Very good debut in 2014. And then last season, uh, did not play in a game due to a couple of shoulder surgeries. First things first, Max, I mean, how good does it feel to be back? I mean, you're through a handful of games now. First five games back in pro ball, hits in all five, you're batting 450, which is pretty good, people will tell you. Um, I mean, how good has this felt being back for you? Uh, I mean, it's just a true blessing to be back out there on the field. Um, getting back out there under the lights, in front of fans, you know, after – that long rehab and you almost forget kind of the feeling but um once you get back out there um it it just brings it all back together and makes what you work for even even more enjoyable Max in 2015 underwent uh, surgery to repair a partially torn right labrum. That was actually at the end of 2014. Then arthroscopic surgery in February of 2015. Didn't get a chance to play last year. Um, and this is – I'm actually in the process right now of reading The Arm by Jeff Passan of Yahoo Sports, which is the phenomenal book on Tommy John surgery and what it's like to go through arm injuries. And, Max, from your vantage point, I mean, obviously the rehab is going to be really difficult from a, a physical standpoint, but how tough is it mentally not being able to play last year? I think mentally is probably the tougher part than physically, honestly. Because I mean, there's some days you you show up, your arms feeling good, and you know you kind of you got that hope. And there's some days everybody's gonna have them with injuries that you know it's aching, hurting, and that's when you know thoughts start running through your mind. And at the same time, you just gotta stay mentally strong and fight through it, and know that what you're doing eventually is gonna you know come out on the positive side. But um I think that was by far the toughest part as as opposed to physically. And, and Max, just kinda of take us through when you found out you did need those surgeries. I mean you you uh underwent one for the torn right labrum in October of twenty fourteen, then another one last February. Um, you know, what what was it like hearing for the first time that you needed a surgery and then hearing again that you needed another one? Well, the first one, the the MRI showed a partial tear. Whenever they went in there, there was actually no tear. Um, so they did kind of a scope and a cleanup. And, um, you know, coming out of that, there wasn't much done. You know, I had high, really high hopes that, you know, whatever they cleaned up was gonna was just going to make it feel a lot better. But um, once I got that through the throwing program, I just I couldn't get it going. And then it was kind of, they didn't know exactly what to do because the symptoms were impingement, but um, there was nothing physically torn or wrong. So it kind of became a game where, you know, they're trying to just create more more room in there for the, the, the bone to move around. And, you know, I was kind of, at first, I was kind of hesitant because, I figured that if nothing was wrong, you know, there wouldn't be any need to kind of go back in there. But at the same time, um, we went ahead and had it because, like, I mean, I just couldn't get to the film program. And I think, you know, eventually for the long run, it actually helped. And, and you mentioned there the throwing program, and you mentioned before how nice it was to get back playing under the mm-hmm. lights again. Um what what is that rehab process exactly like? You know, a lot of fans they are seeing you under the lights. They're seeing you, 
you know, when you are playing pro ball, but they're not necessarily seeing that other side when you're at extended spring training, when you're going through the, what is sometimes the toughest process for, you know, young pro players like yourself. So what, what is that rehab process like specifically with the shoulder injuries? Uh, it's a lot early on, uh, right after the surgery, it's a lot of just simply get it moving again. Um, a lot of soft tissue, but everything kind of tightens up when you don't use it and whatnot. And, um, that, that goes on for a good while. And then you kind of slowly start working back into strengthening the rotator cuff, your scaps, um, and then start lightly lifting weights to where it's not going to affect it. But, you know, so when you do start throwing and using it again, you have the right muscles ready to fire and you're not causing more harm. And, um, the slow, the, I mean, the throwing program is very, very slow. You kind of start out. I mean, just short, tossing, a couple of days off, do the same thing. And then, I mean, you gradually build up, but it's not its not a huge jump. So the repetitive, I guess you could say, schedule of the throwing is what kind of wears you down because you got you to gotta start pretty much from the bottom and build your arm all the way back up. And it's, it's, a, it's a tough process, but, you know, once you – once you get back there throwing, you know, say 120 feet, you look at how far you've made it and how much progress you made, and you, you, know, you realize that all the work you did actually did benefit you. Max, since your return, um, five games, all as a DH in the lineup, obviously uh, a lot of people are going to have questions going forward about arm strength and, and how you're going to adapt back to working behind the plate. How do you feel defensively, and what's the plan for you going forward? I mean, when it comes to – Defen- uh, defensively, I feel fine. Um, I've been catching a lot of sides and doing a bunch of drills over my rehab stint. And that, but uh, right now, we're just trying to continue building the arm up because, I mean, after three surgeries, you know, you're going to hit these little humps in the road, and you just gotta you just gotta keep throwing and get it over it and do everything that you can to um, to, to progress instead of go backwards. So. We're just kind of taking it slow. I mean, the most important thing is that I really needed the bats. So that was kind of our main focus. And then, you know, once I get the arm exactly where I need it, we'll work back into catching and um, getting back in the game. Well, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about is it seems like you've reacclimated really quickly. I mean, you go out in your first game back three for four with a homer. You drive in a couple of runs, uh, two multi-hit games since then. And like I said, hits in all five. Um, I mean, timing wise, are you surprised at how well you've been able to get right back in and, and seemingly be able to figure out uh, Midwest League pitching in the in the early going? Well, I think I think the first great, first game was pure adrenaline. I don't really remember that night too much. <laughs> but um I mean, it's it's definitely taking a lot of time, and um, the, my timing with my load, um, swing, and everything, I've really had to. I've really focused on that more than the results, just because, you know, once you get that down, kind of the swing and everything comes along with it, and um, it's I still got a good ways to go. Uh, you know, some of my bats, I'll put the barrel on the ball, but more times than not, it's. The time is just a little bit off, whether it's in my load or the actual timing of the pitch. Um, but the main thing is I, I just got to start picking up the spin a little better. You know, the the picking the pitch up out of the pitcher's hand, not letting it get too deep before you, you know, you got to decide to swing. 
um, I'm just trying to focus more on the little things and then allow the uh, allow the results to come along as the swing is better. And Max, I kind of want to jump back a couple of years. But, uh, Tyler mentioned before, you know, you were taken with the 11th overall pick in 2014. Um, we're coming up, you know, on June here in a couple of weeks. That's draft month. Um, draft's yeah. going to be on a lot of guys' minds. Um, kind of take us mm-hmm. through your draft process. You were a guy, you know, you went to Kennesaw State. Uh, you know, we're the MVP of the Cape League in 2013. Kind of get put on the map there. No, wouldn't bat summer league like that. What was the draft process like for you? Um, going into that year, you eventually were drafted in the first round and signed. Uh, it was. I really have to give credit to my my coaches and my agent because um, in college they kind of took it upon upon themselves to to do all this most of the talking to the scouts um, and just most importantly for me to just go out there and play and not worry about you know, the results of what was going to happen come the draft time. And um, so I pretty much just I went out there and enjoyed as much as I could that season. Um, enjoyed playing with the teammates. And um, I figured, you know, whatever was going to happen was going to happen and might as well enjoy the moment while it lasts. But um, it was uh, the actual draft night was probably, probably the best night of my life, I'd say. Um, I was able to spend it with my teammates while we were in the Super Regional at Louisville. And um, I was glad that they could all be there with me, you know, because they always pushed me to, to get better and stay humble. And I can't thank them enough, too. All right. And uh, just kind of flashing forward to present day, I guess, we, I guess we'll leave you on this uh, note. You know, we okay. talked a little bit about how you started back in Lansing and how you're getting your feet under you and things are starting to come back for you. Um, Defense is probably going to be next. Um, What would your kind of dream rest of the season be like um, as you're working your way back here? Uh, I I think the best thing to to do would be, you know, just to get comfortable again. Not, Not to always try to be working on fixing something or, you know, just trying to just to be able to not think and play. Um, for instance, like to say at bat or hitting, you know, not thinking about my timing or hitting my foot down, you know, just being able to go up there and enjoy that bat and put a put up a, a good at bat and catching wise, I think it would be, you know, to get back into an everyday catching role. Um, make sure the shoulders, make sure you know we get it as strong as possible. Uh, don't have any more problems with that, but. Um, we still got a, a lot of season left and a lot of stuff to do, so looking forward to see what the outcome is. He is Max Pentecost of the Toronto Blue Jays organization, the seventh-ranked prospect in all the Toronto system coming into 2016 via MLB Pipeline. Uh, if you are a left-handed pitcher in the Midwest League, don't follow <laughs> Max anywhere. He's five for six against lefties with an OPS of 2190, so stay as far away as possible. Max, it's so exciting to see you back out there, man. Congratulations on uh, on being healthy and a strong start, and uh, we'll be watching the rest of the way. Best of luck. Thank you. I appreciate it. Back home at the MILB.com home offices is one Benjamin Hill who returns from a swing through the Carolinas on the road. Welcome back, Ben. How are you? Hey, guys. Thanks. It's 
good to be back. Good to have you back. So North Carolina, South Carolina, the trip is done. Myrtle Beach was a stop. Pensacola. Columbia was a stop. I always see Cola Fireflies as their handle, and then I get all confused. Uh, And finally, the Carolina Mudcats, your final stop. We talked to you last week when you were on the road to Columbia. What was the the rest of the trip like? Yeah, when I talked to you last week on on the way to Columbia, it was in Conway, uh, South Carolina, and I just spent almost $50 on beef jerky. And um, if you recall during that conversation, I was kind of giving a quick inventory of all the things I bought at this beef jerky outlet. And uh, one of them was crickets, right? Like uh, salt and vinegar flavored crickets. Mm -hmm. So I have them with me here. And I want to see if Sam would join me in that. Oh, yes. Come on, Sam. I honestly didn't know this was coming. Come on, Sam. I had salt and vinegar chips with lunch today. So let me ask you this because I'm not in in the room with you guys right now. Do they look. Like, like when you pull it out, does it just look like an insect, or is it like? Oh, multi- it's a it's a cricket. Oh, gross. Oh, it is a cricket. There is no there. there yeah. nothing has been done to this it's a cricket. cricket. I put him on the spot here. He can say no, but if he has a commitment to his art form, to the uh, podcast yeah. art yep. form, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. Here, yeah. I'll even take live on air. Take a photo. <laughs> Please tweet this uh, right now. We'll lift the curtain on the process of recording the show before the show podcast. Vine this of Sam eating a cricket. No, right. we don't need to vine it. We can vine it. Should I vine it? <laughs> Sam, are you going to do it? Of course I'm going to do it. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. I'm going to do okay. a vine. It'll be All right. online. All right. We could have pumped this up a lot. We could have periscoped and had it live and whatever. We're going to only have a six-second reaction shot. of, uh, And I want a description, too. All right. Well, here's the vine. All right. Go. Here we go. Here's right. Sam Dykstra eating a cricket. Doesn't sound too crunchy. Here's Sam <laughs> now, 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 my, now my vine's playing back, and here I have a cricket too going on. Yep. And uh, it tastes it's very crunchy. It's crunchy. Is it okay? Crunchy. It's very salt and vinegary. They okay. Covered up that sweet old cricket taste. That sweet cricket flavor, just yeah. like Grandma used to make. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well. So. Might be by the office soon. History. To, I'm gonna have to sneak one of these crickets, I guess. Yeah, great radio, great radio right there, great podcast. Right there. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, then I went to Columbia, a new ballpark in Columbia, Spirit Communications Park. Um, had a story appear on the website, milb.com, for those keeping score at home. That appeared yesterday, um, kind of my overview of the stadium. Um, really nice stadium, and it has pretty much everything you'd expect from a modern-day stadium. Not too many overt quirks, and... Um, the power alleys are a little weird. There's some weird dimensions out there. But, you know, lots of group areas, big bar in the outfield for the Thirsty Thursday crowd. They're playing lawn pong um, on the grassy area near the bar, which is just like beer pong but with volleyballs and trash cans. So that was like a, wow. a pretty, good, pretty good ballpark visual. But, you know, real wide concourse, 360 degrees, um, really affordable as compared to some of the new – I mean, all the parks are affordable. It's minor league baseball. Um, but really affordable. There's almost nothing over $12 to get in. Um, they, they, they're really trying to keep it as accessible as possible. Um, but it's a weird place right now because, you know, the stadium is smack dab in the middle of what was 180 acre, um, uh, mental asylum, a hospital for a mental hospital. It was South Carolina's mental hospital and it had a, it was a 180 acre campus. So, so you're, the ballpark's surrounded by these dilapidated former asylum, buildings and it's like oh look over there in the outfield see that little brick building that was the silent bakery and now that's going to be like a tech startup headquarters and all this so the area is very much in transition and 
you know, the Spirit Communications Park is like the literal centerpiece. So even though it's in downtown Columbia, it's so ensconced, ensconced in in the middle of this campus that you don't even see it until you really pull into the parking lots and and the the fields repurposes parking lots and it's like there it is it's not very like a public place that you see in the major roads or you see looming in the distance it's really kind of isolated in this uh what used to be a mental hospital so pretty interesting there and you know the plan in the ensuing years and really two decades is to build up that entire area into something completely different with um you know apartments and office space and uh storefronts and all sorts of things. So I think the ultimate success of the Fireflies is going to be contingent on how well, you know, the, the rest of that Bull Street development project uh, goes. It's but beautiful, still. by the way, too. There are a lot of pictures on Ben's story on the site right now, and the buildings are really, really... I mean, if you're kind of a, a nerd with ruined porn love like I am, it's really, really cool, old, dilapidated stuff that you can imagine being reinvented and, and becoming the centerpiece of a community. There's some really cool shots. Yeah, most of those buildings are not going to be torn down. They have historical status, and um, I'd like to look into it further. I think there's some real stories, obviously, you know this because this the grounds of this hospital go back to pre-civil war and it really evolved through the years there's some notable you know residents for sure um so it's a pretty cool thing to look into and and to see these buildings which are in kind of a dilapidated state now you know become other things but still retain their iconic charm these uh old brick buildings that used to be part of mental asylum so pretty interesting backdrop for a ballpark and uh, i went from there and closed out the trip in uh, zebulon home of the carolina mudcats you know they play about 40 miles outside of uh raleigh durham and uh, i'd never been there before and it was one of those things like when i'm on a road trip i pull up to the stadium and i'm like huh i never really thought what this stadium looked like and i wasn't quite expecting this but that stadium is a uh, very much a throwback, not a throwback like 1930s, but like throwback to the early and mid 90s um, before the kind of revolution in ballparks that, you know, that we associate on the major league level with Camden Yards. But, you know, the, the open walkways and group areas and big scoreboards, it is like a hulking concrete edifice with two levels and a really steep uh, seating grades. And a uh, pretty cool place and a netting that runs all the way down to the through the outfield on both sides. Um, so a kind of quirky and out of step place um, that was kind of cool to visit because I just that's a team I just haven't really covered much. So it was cool to see it firsthand. And how did the kind of community take up, you know, or how did it, it kind of incorporate so, cor- incorporate itself in that community? Because I know, like you said, it's 40 miles outside. It's kind of a neighborhood. I'm going to work in that atmosphere. Yeah, um, it was funny. The drive in to uh, from Columbia to Zebulon, I was really surprised those last 30 miles or so how rural it got. And in this, on this whole trip, I wasn't in too many rural areas. And uh, so it really uh, flattens out. Um, the landscape flattens out. There's less and less houses. There's You start to see uh, you know livestock and farms. Um, but the stadium is called Five County Ballpark. And so it draws on all five of those counties, and I'd be hard-pressed to name them right now. Uh, but it's between five counties, and the location stadium is just far enough away from the Durham Bulls territory, right, so they can also operate as an affiliated team. So it can draw from you know, pretty populated areas as you head toward uh, Raleigh-Durham, but it also draws on you know, these five counties and all the surrounding towns um, you know, that are closer to it. So it's an interesting setup for a park, and, you know, Everywhere I went on this trip was a, a city that 
you probably have some association with uh, Myrtle Beach and Charleston and Durham and whatnot. And then there's Zebulon, and that's the one people are like, uh, what's that? <laughs> and it doesn't help that the Carolina Mudcats with the most indistinct geographical name in minor league baseball. Yeah. Ben, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, so there was a fight in baseball. I don't know if anybody heard about this on Sunday in which one Rugned Odor threw – a bit of a haymaker at uh, Jose Bautista and launched the uh, billion gif fury that came out of it. I know it's pronounced gif, but it's more fun to say gif. Um, so Rugnet Odor throws a punch, um, gets an eight-game suspension, and uh, in minor league baseball fashion, a team was there to capitalize almost instantaneously on it and wades into a little bit of controversy. But uh, the Frisco Rough Riders have come out with Rugi's red punch for this weekend. Yeah, uh... You know, big kudos to the Rough Riders, you know, a team owned by Chuck Greenberg, whose teams are always kind of getting up to this sort of thing. Uh, General manager Jason Dombach, uh, you know, veterans of this sort of uh, very timely promotional responses. So they're going to be selling this literal punch drink, Ruji's Red Punch, which has uh, an energy. It's basically fruit punch, an energy drink and uh, some booze. And all these things symbolize various aspects of what went down. Um, so it's gotten a lot of traction and uh, great publicity for the Rough Riders. I have to say, I'm surprised that this that no one stepped in and said, "Guys, don't do this." Um, I was kind of having that same thought about this because in affiliated baseball, you've got to step tread very lightly. Yeah, uh, when it comes to capitalizing on events that can be seen as detrimental to uh, Major League Baseball or the you know parent clubs. Um, image. So I'm a little surprised they got away with this. I, I fully applaud that they tried it because honestly, what's the worst that can happen? You're you're told it, but already gotten the publicity. You know, sometimes what's that cliche? It's better to uh, beg for forgiveness and ask for permission. I think yeah, something yeah, along those yeah. lines. Um, but you know, something in my mind, Farm Tamer, and also part of the same ownership group, Myrtle Beach Pelicans, in the wake of that whole uh, Adam LaRoche incident with him quitting the him leaving baseball because his son couldn't be in the clubhouse. The Myrtle Beach Pelicans did a promotion that they invited the Roach and his family to the ballpark. And he kind of had just like a family first father and son themed promo based around that incident. And they had to withdraw that, which seems much more tame than a uh, alcoholic drink celebrating a uh, on field fight. Uh, so more power to you, Frisco and uh, congrats on the publicity. How much does it kind of help that this is Frisco, which is a Rangers affiliate operating within Texas? I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, the justification for the the LaRoche one is that he had played for Myrtle Beach way back when. Um, I don't know. I haven't. I'm swamped this time of year. I'd love to actually look into you know what, what channels they went through before making this happen, if any, um, if it did get approvals or or what happened. But um, at the end of the day, it's fun. And why be offended by something so just fun and frivolous? Something very entertaining happened on a major league baseball field, and now a minor league team is capitalizing on it. That's that's the name of the game. That is the entire business of minor league baseball. And uh, we'll go from one form of controversy to what is sure to be and pretty much already is another. The Binghamton Mets, the double A affiliate of the New York Mets next year are going to be changing their name. They announced six finalists this week. And there's always the ever increasingly intense MILB arms race to be the wackiest name team with the craziest logo and whatever. These Binghamton finalists 
are really something. Okay, I'm gonna admit first of all, um, you know, I'm I'm based in Denver. I grew up here, whatever. So I have whatever the opposite of an East Coast bias is in that I had no idea that Binghamton is apparently considered the carousel capital of the world, like the merry-go cap merry-go-round capital of the world. Uh, they have six. Of the fewer than 170 antique carousels remaining in the United States and Canada, six of those are in the greater Binghamton area. So four of these names pertain to carousels, apparently, but I'm going to run through these names. The Binghamton Bullheads, which is a nod to the Bullhead Catfish, which is a local fish in the, the Susquehanna River. Binghamton Gobblers which honors the, quote, outdoorsman lifestyle and turkeys who call Binghamton home. And then these four, the Binghamton Rocking Horses, okay, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, the Stud Muffins, and the Timber Jockeys. Ben, go. I don't even yeah. know a question. Just go. You, 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 got a, <laughs> you, you got a fish reference, a fowl reference, and then one, two, three, four um, – carousel references and yeah. i think that gives us a good indication of where the team wants to go with this and, and will go with this um there's other teams that have carousels at the ballpark and i imagine that as part of the rebrand that they can add that sort of old time amusement feel to the ballpark that's my guess um i wrote a little blog post on this this morning i didn't know anything about bimpton's uh carousel history either and through this job i've gotten to know you know, at least some bullet point facts about almost every minor league town. And the two things I associate with Binghamton not being overly familiar with the area are speedies. You know, the, the they're yeah. a Binghamton sandwich, marinated meat. It's just basically marinated meat on bread. They're very simple, but they're, you know, very tasty. That's kind of like kebab style meat. And the team has had speedy races for a year between chef and marinade and the sandwich. And um, I'm surprised not that wasn't referenced at all, but I guess maybe that's too regionally specific. Um, and I, I think also Binghamton is home of a hot air balloon um, festival, and there's definitely a hot air balloon culture in the region. So those are the two things I would have guessed based on my limited knowledge. But no, we have uh, a fish, a bird, and uh, four carousel references. And I, and I, I did look it up today, and, and all those carousels uh, pertaining to Binghamton's history was a turn of the 20th century uh, businessman and philanthropist who thought that carousels were beautiful and good for the community and George uh, f johnson I yeah believe. george george f johnson and so he he purchased them all and uh that's what gave the team that legacy and uh they were free for everyone to ride free or sometimes the price of admission was a piece of litter <laughs> so uh you know you pick up some trash on the way and then get to ride the carousel that's and uh, and and here we are um over 100 years later and those carousels are still uh open to the public during the summer months at various parks around Binghamton and the Binghamton area. And now the Binghamton Mets are very likely going to have a carousel-based name. And here we go. It's minor league baseball. Everyone's angry. You know, there was the change.org petition today and the angry comments on Facebook. And I'm certainly not trying to knock a local fan's view that this is kind of ridiculous. And I, I get that there might be some people being upset over this, but having observed this process play out so many times over the last decade, I don't ever want to knock people's opinions and their outrage. Usually once the team rebrands has an image to go with it, builds the ballpark look around the new name, right. people come around real quick and it's just very much out of the minor league baseball playbook. The, the good, the manual right now is be ridiculous, weather the initial outrage, get a ton of publicity, and then own it when it's time to own it. And more often than not, that has worked out because it keeps happening. Huh. 
these names. I uh, some of them like rocking horses. Okay, that makes sense. Timber jockeys. I guess I can kind of see the connection there. I don't know what a rumble pony is, and I have no idea how a stud muffin is connected to a carousel. But I'm willing to learn. I learned how a yard goat was a railroad term. Yeah, well, yeah, stud muffins celebrates the collection of carousel horses belonging to Binghamtonians. Totally. That's I figured. I figured that was stud it. muffins. Just sounds like a name, like. <laughs> Like, what is it? Omaha has one of those nights where it's just, this was almost our name. Yeah. Oh, oh, what yeah if there's nights. definitely what if nights, what could have been nights. I was definitely thinking of that. Yeah. Stud but, Muffins is made for that. Like, you do it once a year and that's it. And, you, you know, you, you wear it like six months to Valentine's Day or something. You're the Stud Muffins. Yeah. I just can't see it as a carousel term. Like, you're yeah, with, that's with what the I kids think. and they're ready to ride the carousel. And you're like, are you ready to get on the stud muffin, honey? Are you ready to ride the stud muffins? It just does not sound like something you associate with the merry-go-rounds and carousels. But um, it's gotten a lot of publicity. It's gotten us talking. It's gotten a lot of people talking. And at this point in this era and this moment in time in minor league baseball, I would literally rule none of those out. Here's my because guess. I've been wrong in the past. There's been that one, but I'm like, oh, they won't go with that. And then they do. No, they do. We're like 11 and a half months away from opening day of 2017, so we're each going to pick what we think the eventual name is going to be. I'm going to go Rumble Ponies. That's going to be I my was, That's my suggestion. I right, was actually going to go with the same. Okay. Ponies. I'll go with Stud Muffins. Cause, okay. Know, it's just like it's the most out there one. I yeah. think I actually like sell. Like so many people are going to want to wear a Stud Muffin jersey. Yeah. That exists. So I, I, it's the wackiest one. I'm just going to go with Stud Muffin. All right, there we have it. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. You can follow the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. When is the next road trip? Where is the next road trip, Ben? Well, my next road trip is more of a road jaunt. It is now um, TBD because that was going to be an early June uh, visit to Hartford's uh, Dunkin' Donuts Park, which um, did not meet its construction deadline, which will not be ready for the planned May 31st opening, which is obviously already severely delayed. Um, early June, well into June is in doubt right now. So I'm not sure what I'm getting to Hartford. The next definitely on the agenda trip is the entirety of the Appy League, June 25th through July 4th, all 10 teams in 10 days. So that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. And in the meantime, I'm writing all about the Carolinas. You know, got my uh, Columbia Spirit Communications Park up on the website. Got an article about uh, Zeb Vance, a uh, developmentally disabled superfan in Greensboro, which I think is a, a fun story and a, a inspiring story um cranking stuff out on the blog coming soon blah 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 there's always more where that came from and uh i'm just gonna keep coming with it find it all there bensbiz.mlblogs.com and you can follow ben he is on twitter and uh, also on vine in case you're wondering where you will soon get to see sam jackson eating a cricket uh, i'm so- set up right now thanks okay for good me. good sam thanks for eating the cricket man yeah, uh, you stepped up that's some hot it is, man. Stud Muffin eats cricket. That was perfect. Then we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> A little earlier, you heard our promo for MILB.TV. You can head there now, sign up for your subscription for the rest of the 2016 season where you can watch Stars of Baseball tomorrow. You can watch them today at milb tv um so that's gonna just about send us to the end of the 59th edition of the show before the show podcast huge thanks to max pentecost for joining us max is on twitter by the way he is at m pentaco not with the st and then the number three m pentaco 
three. Maxwell Pentecost Jr. is uh, his name listed on there if you want to search that way. Benjamin Hill again is at Ben's Biz. Big thanks to those guys as always. How's the cricket aftertaste? It's uh, it's salty, salty and vinegary. Okay. That's, that's about it. it. They loaded that thing up with flavor. That's all I can say. That doesn't seem too bad. No, no. I, I would chow down on a couple of those. Maybe I'm going to have to... Uh... I have to try off vine of course we don't need everything i eat on vine now well true ben's just gonna follow you around and vine sam eating meals from now on oh, here's sam with a slice of pizza worst vine account ever we're gonna be like banksy it's a new form of art <laughs> uh mill tv this week sam what do you got yeah so uh you know speaking of podcast synergy and bringing things up and wrapping things around each other uh I, i'm gonna kind of focus on there's a mill tv game this weekend um between Akron and Binghamton uh we talked earlier in the podcast about how Akron is part of that Indians system that's on the up and up right now uh they're facing off against Binghamton which this is their last season at the Mets so let's tie that first segment along with Ben's segment all together here nice work yeah so you get to see Clint Frazier I'm specifically focused on Saturday that's going to be at 6:35 p.m eastern time um if you're keeping if you want to keep your calendar open uh so you get to see Bradley Zimmer, Clint Frazier for that Akron Rubber Ducks team. That's Those are two really, really good prospects worthy of your time. But also starting on Saturday is Sean Morimondo. Uh, he's currently 7-0 and with a 1.69 ERA. Um, so that'll be fun to see him pitch, see if he can keep it going, keep that ERA below 2 and improve to 8-0 and on the season. Um, and for Binghamton, you get a chance to see Dominic Smith. Um, seems like his power is coming together fairly well this year. Um, it's not exactly at the tip-top level that you would still hope for a first baseman, but it's it's much better than it has been in recent years. Um, so tons to catch in, in that uh, Akron game against Binghamton this Saturday at 635. What about for you, Tyler? I, too, am going to try to keep our podcast very synergistic. Uh, Max Pentecost and the Lansing Lugnuts will be on the road at Great Lakes taking on the Loons this weekend. They've got a doubleheader coming up on Friday and then Saturday and Sunday contests as well. So if you want to get a look at the – 2014 first round pick of the Toronto Blue Jays. That is the time and the place to do it as Lansing will be colliding with the loons on MILB.TV. So Friday, a couple of night games, and then Saturday and Sunday, day games both, I believe, if I remember looking that up correctly, and then tap dance long enough to be able to search for it on the page. Uh, nope, Saturday's a night game. Ruin that. So, uh,. <laughs> Night games Friday and Saturday, and then a day game Sunday afternoon. So check out Max Pentecost. Um, there's a chance you can see him behind the plate this weekend, too, since he has not played defensively, uh, getting all ready to get back into that routine and that regimen of work. Uh, but there's a chance you can see that this weekend as well. So uh, Max Pentecost is on the docket this weekend, too. So I think that does it. I think that's it. I think this was a pretty uh, packed podcast. I'm, I'm glad the way that this one came out. Next week, 60 episodes of the Show Before the Show podcast. Episode number 60 coming up next week and uh, another full week of baseball between now and then. Enjoy it. Sam, nice work today. As always. Yeah, no, uh, you have a good week, Tyler, everybody listening at home, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 